everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am actually coming to you today from Southern California. So I am in San Diego today attending the wedding of one of my very close friends who I met while I was volunteering at A21 four years ago. And Scott and I have just absolutely fallen in love with her fiance, soon to be husband by the time you're hearing this podcast probably. And I'm just so, so, so excited to be here. But the conversation that you're listening to feels very rooted in hometown. I'm talking to Catherine McNeil, and we are just discussing kind of some of the books that she has worked on. She is a brilliant author and has three different books that are linked below that we also kind of discuss in our conversation. But I just think you're going to fall in love with her. And I feel like her tone and her heartbeat is just so relevant and resonates really, really well with life right now. We all have our different habits and routines and rhythms. And a big focus for me, especially the last six months, has been taking steps to make my lifestyle a little bit more healthier. Maybe you're in the same boat. You're getting older, life is progressing, and you just want to be at your absolute best. So whether that's getting active for 30 minutes a day, eating more vegetables, checking in with a counselor, or drinking more water, a big goal for so many of us is aiming towards a healthier lifestyle. And one of the steps that I've been taking the last two years is a daily vitamin made by Ritual. I've been taking their prenatal for two years and I absolutely love it. Ritual offers a lot of different multivitamins, probiotics, and proteins, and all of their products are simple, clean, and backed by science to meet their made traceable standards. Like I said, I take the prenatal because of the season of life that Scott and I are in right now, hoping to add to our family and can't get enough of it. It's infused with citrus, so it's actually pleasant to take. And as weird as it sounds, the vitamin is actually kind of beautiful. But for you, if you're looking to improve gut health or to even incorporate more collagen into your diet, there are so many options that Ritual has. And you can get 20% off of your first month by using promo code Nikki Dutton at checkout. That's all caps, no spaces, Nikki Dutton to get 20% off of your first order. So what are you waiting for? Go ahead, place your order and let me know what you think about it by visiting ritual.com using promo code Nikki Dutton when you check out for 20% off of your first order. Enjoy. Catherine, I'm so excited to have you here today. Uh, We were just discussing the differences in teas based on where you're from. So tell us who you are, where you're from, and how you drink your tea. Okay. (laughs) Well, my name is Catherine McNeil, and I live in the suburbs of Chicago. We call it Chicagoland up here. Um, I have lived in the Midwest my entire life, so I do not drink sweetened tea. I drink black tea, but I really only like iced tea. Yeah. I love that kind of bitter, cold flavor on a hot day. But in the morning, I drink coffee. I don't drink hot tea. Got so, it. Okay. That's yeah, just well, to clarify, I'm right. really a coffee person. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's true. Because being a hot tea person is like a whole different conversation. It, it, yes. So. Absolutely. That's I'm glad true. you understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and what does life look like for you? Well, I professionally, I am a writer and an editor, so I am the author of three books, and I have worked on editing a few other a few other books and other projects, and that's what I do professionally. I'm also a 
MDiv student at, mm-hmm. at a North Park Theological Seminary. So I always taking a couple of classes, uh, which is always a joy to yeah. beads my mind for the writing and editing that oh, I do. Completely. It gives you something to say. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and fresh, fresh insights. Then I am the mother of three kids. They are, I, I'm saying three teenagers now because they are 17, 14, and 12. Wow. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that my 12-year-old daughter is a teenager. So <laughs> yes, because she basically is. Yes. Um. Yeah. So they keep me very, very busy. And my family runs a, kind of a we call it a hobby or a side hustle or a small business, but we run a, like a farm stand oh, off of our wow. front porch. So um, if, if you hear a doorbell ringing while, while we're talking. <laughs> we'll pause it. You can see that order through and then we'll come back. Yeah. Absolutely. I will ignore the door, but you yeah. might hear a bell. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. What do you guys sell in your farm stand? Well, just about every garden vegetable you could imagine, depending on what part of the season it is. Um, but to give you a sense of scale, because a lot of people have a garden, we have over 150 tomato plants alone. Wow. Yeah, it's insane. Wow, that is yep. a lot of tomatoes. Yes, it is, <laughs> which is why we sell them. We can't eat yes. that many. <laughs> no, there's no way. I'm so embarrassed to say, I think I've shared this on the podcast, but my grandpa is this legendary farmer from Kansas farmland. That's been his whole Uh life. That's been his livelihood. Um, It's just like a generational thing and um, has grown alfalfa and corn and like all the things. So this year I am in Georgia. He's in Kansas, but I decided I would try to start my own little garden, tried to start seeds inside, was successful, got a bunch of seeds to sprout, which was really exciting. But by the time it was you know, this, the time to put them outside, put them Mm. in the ground. I had lost almost everything. So I I did not make any success this year. So maybe next year is my year. I don't know. Well, I have to say the growing them from seed indoors, that is the hardest part. Yeah. That's what I've heard. I I think Mm -hmm. I bit off more than I can chew. I I think think next year I'll get some seedlings. I think that's better. We'll get them closer to planting time. There will be like a very quick, just in the ground or in Mm -hmm. pots or planters. Yeah. I think it was too much for me. So I admire your family's farm stand. (laughs) That takes a lot of time and a lot of skill. It takes a lot of skill too. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I love too that you said you're a writer Mm -hmm. and I think about this a lot. I've had a few different friends on the podcast who have written books. Aubrey is one of them. She's who connected us. Um, But I think about this. There are so many people who I talk to that say they love to write or they have this book idea Mm -hmm. or there's this book inside of them. And I think there's even a quote about that, that like so many people in the U.S. have say that they have a book inside of them. What like was the tipping point for you? How did you actually decide to write? Have you just always known? It's always been your thing. Like, what does that look like for you? Well, this is kind of funny. I think in a way I have always known. I've always loved writing. When I was a little kid, I would write. You can't, the listener can't see me, but (laughs) I'm doing air quotes. I would write books, which my mom or my aunt would like go to Kinko's and have bound for me. And um, yeah, I was always writing something. I had a poem published in my very small town newspaper, you know, a town of like a thousand people. Uh, So I've always been writing, but I think because I loved it so much, Mm -hmm. it didn't occur to me that I could be someone who actually 
to me, a writer was like a movie star. You know, nobody thinks that they could actually be a movie star. Yeah. And I didn't realize that a writer is just a normal person with a normal job. I guess movie stars probably are too. But um, I never really pursued it as a career. Um, I was actually working in human resources for a really long time. And it was when I was pregnant with my um, third child, who's now 12, that I had been accumulating a burden for the other moms that I was friends with um, who were so rapidly kind of dropping out of the spiritual life or the life of faith because they kept hearing messages that required them to do a lot of tasks or to invest a lot of time and a lot of energy into these kind of buckets of spiritual practices. And they didn't have any time or energy left. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about doing a quiet time and, um, they didn't have time and they didn't have quiet. (laughs) Neither did I. And I just had this increasing burden to say, um, you know, God is here. God is not surprised that moms and babies exist. God is not surprised that the cycle of life is what it is and that the seasons of life unfold the way they do. God invented all that. So God knows that we can't be joining the missions team painting the school on Saturday because we're changing diapers and we're just trying to survive. Um, So I think I became pregnant in a way with this message that I really wanted to communicate in a in a longer form than I could over social media or over a blog, um, which I had also been doing. So that's kind of how my my first book was born. And then I've just kept going ever since. Well, and how did you, maybe you didn't struggle with this, but how did you kind of um, reconcile fear of saying the wrong thing or fear of saying something that someone else has already said? You know, you see, yeah. you walk into Barnes and Noble and there's so many books on the yeah. shelf and you think surely what I have to say is already written mm-hmm. or, or like, what if no one, agrees. How did you kind of reconcile those fears when it came to like actually seeing through that first book? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all. I am. Yes, <laughs> okay. yeah, I am. Yeah. I'm a counterphobic six with a really strong five wing. Okay. So, okay. What does that mean for people so, who aren't familiar? Yeah. So what that means, the six is always looking for like safety and security, but the counterphobic component means that I'm just always pushing back. Mm. And um, the five means that I'm always researching and trying to understand. And so I personally just feel really convinced, like all the way down to my core, that I'm wrong about most things. (laughs) I can can relate to that. (laughs) Most people are wrong about most things. And so the goal is not really to be correct. Mm. Although obviously sometimes it is, you know, if you're building Mm -hmm. a bridge, (laughs) you should be, you should measure that really carefully. (laughs) But um, I think for most of us, the goal is to be to be loving, to be mm. compassionate, to be pointing each other towards life and wholeness and mm. shalom, towards God, um, towards survival, towards health, mm. um, which is not something you can measure with a yeah. 12-inch ruler. Um, so I, I see my writing as daily bread. Um, I don't know what you listener out there had for lunch today. I hope it sustained you but you are not going to remember it in a week. You're not going to remember it in a year. 
but it got you through today. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I pray that my words will be, whether I'm writing or uh, whether I'm speaking at an event or even on a podcast. My prayer is that my words will be daily bread for someone. It doesn't have to be the most epic Thanksgiving feast that you will remember until the end of time. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just lunch for today. And that's that's my loaves and fishes that I lift up to God and I ask um, for it to be useful if it can be. I think that's a really refreshing perspective because I do think even going back to that movie star, that like rock star example, like we have this dichotomy in our thinking mm-hmm. that I'm either like me, this normal person working a normal job, doing normal things, or this movie star, this once in a lifetime, hundreds of thousands of followers, all of these things. And it's, it's sometimes hard to recognize how vast and how much room there is in the Mm -hmm. middle. And there's a lot of space there. So when we look at these people who are the one and the only Mm -hmm. in their movie, in their industry, in their thing, in their books, the bestsellers, the New York Times bestsellers, that space does feel very limited, but I think we undercut all the room that there yes. is between those two yes, extremes. Yeah. And so I really, I, I'm really refreshed by the way that you said that, just offering your words as daily bread. And for the, I guess for the goal to be to encourage and to uplift someone, mm-hmm. not to necessarily make a name for yourself or exactly. to build this like massive following, which can be a temptation now because yeah. you see it happen for yeah. so many people. And I'm sure you've also had friends who have um, written alongside of you. So you're Mm -hmm. seeing them launch their books and podcasts and things. And so sometimes there can be even like this fear of competing for that attention or that reader. Has that ever been like something that you've struggled with? I don't go too much into that kind of competitive, um, you know, she has more than I have. Mm -hmm. I have to somehow grab my share. That doesn't, that kind of thinking doesn't really come naturally for me. But I do think it is a hard industry. Well, it's just a hard time for that. We are being fed messages like that pretty regularly. That's what Uh, I'm thinking. um, Messages of scarcity Mm -hmm. um, and messages of identity and value that center around grabbing that piece of the pie, you know? Um, So I definitely think we're all being faced with that pretty regularly. But when it comes down to it, um, I can only live my life and I can only strive to be faithful to my family, to God, to my community. No one else can do that. Only I can do that. And it's not something that's going to make me famous or popular (laughs) necessarily or wealthy, but it's it's what God has given for me to do. Yeah. And I think it's that idea of being famous in your everyday life, Mm -hmm. like being the person who your neighbors know, especially if they need tomatoes, definitely knock on your door. (laughs) I am definitely tomato famous. That's true. Yes, very tomato famous. But also if they need a helping hand, if they need a word of encouragement, or even for someone who's not located physically near you, for someone who might be looking for that word Mm -hmm. of encouragement to know that they can pick up anything that Catherine McNeil writes and know that it's goal is to speak Hmm. to that spot and to minister to that area. And I think that is a different way, like we're saying, of measuring success or Mm. whatever you might use as the term. But I do think that that is actually something all of us can achieve Mm -hmm. and can kind of strive for. And that's worth the the hours that it 
you have to put into the work. It's worth the time. It's worth the blood, sweat, and tears, I'm sure, that feel like they go into these works. And I want to go back to that book that you were talking about, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline. Can you unpack the premise of that work that you released and what you told us kind of the story behind it, but what does it say? What is it about? Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad you asked. Um, The full title of the book is Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline. And um, just briefly, like I said before, I wrote this for the mom. It could also be a dad or a caregiver of some other kind who is just so buried in the unrelenting tasks of caregiving Mm -hmm. that you're losing sight of all those other things that you wanted to be and do. Um, And what I'm trying to do here in the book is to remind us that God is right here, that we tend to think of God as in like a, in a classroom or in a church sanctuary where there's a lot of like head knowledge and a lot of mm-hmm. discussion and dialogue and a lot of really smart people really hashing things out. But when God actually came to earth, he came as a baby. <laughs> he had a mother who who gave birth to him which is the big story in the Bible is Jesus' birth. Um, Not in a supernatural, magical way, you know, silent night is a myth, myth, you know, like he was crying all night. Um, And that's how God came to us and then just lived a normal childhood um, in a carpenter's family, you know, in a fishing village. Like that's just mind boggling. So I'm convinced that the places that we find God today best, as much as I personally, as I've already shared, love those big ideas and those rooms full of smart people and research, I love that. But I think that where God is, is in just on the ground, people living their lives inside of the world God created, living the lives that they created, rubbing shoulders with their neighbors, taking care of each other, Um, even even in the sacraments, you know, like God taught us to find him in bread and wine, in oil. These are these are just the building blocks of our daily lives. And God says, this is where I'm present. Mm. So for the mom who doesn't have the energy to get to Bible study or her kid has a fever every Tuesday morning when the Bible study is being held, which was the position I was in. always. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> every Tuesday morning, you know, or falls asleep every time she tries to pray because she's so sleep deprived. Like I wanted to say, like, I love prayer. I love Bible study. But if you can't right now, God is here. And so the book is broken into different um Each chapter has like a a spiritual sounding name, like redemption or creation, nurture, service and solitude, uh, sacrifice, surrender, perseverance. And these are the different ways that we've been maybe taught how to live a spiritual life. And then I'm looking at like, how are we already doing that? Like, we're already nurturing. We are already serving. We are already persevering. We are already celebrating. Um, How can we do that? just remembering that God is present with us and we can be doing these things to God. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I don't have kids of my own yet, but a lot of my close friends 
are in those early motherhood stages. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking like within six months, you know, with their first or within the first few years of their like firstborn. And it has been a conversation that a lot of us Mm -hmm. have had of um, even one of my best friends who I'm definitely going to be sending this podcast to so she'll (laughs) hear this. But she, she talks about how even right now, practically, physically texting other people feels impossible. She doesn't have her hands to be able to do that. And every time she pulls out her phone to respond to a text, uh, her baby is right on it, you Mm -hmm. know, wants to hold it and touch it and smash everything. And so she talked about how something so small like that is, it it is affecting the way that she's connecting with us since we live pretty far apart and and the way that we're communicating and relating to each other Mm -hmm. right now. And I can imagine that same frustration can certainly spill over into church and into your relationships with your community, but also Mm -hmm. your relationship with the Lord. And, um, I've heard this phrase a lot, mom guilt, just feeling so guilty that you're just not doing it right with your kids and your partner and all of that. Is that something that you experienced when you were starting off with your kiddos? Absolutely. Uh, The messages that moms have to deal with are just unrelenting. Like no matter what you do, you should have done it a different way. (laughs) And and there's so much marketing I think is aimed at making moms feel that they should be doing something different. And that's absolutely my, the, the loudest voice that I want to come through in long days of small things is no more shoulds. Mm-hmm. You know, not I should wake up at three o'clock to finish my Bible study, not I should make sure that my kids and I are at the service on time. Instead, like take a breath, take a deep breath and remember that God is already here. You don't need, we don't need anything more to add to our mm-hmm. should list. God is right here. I think that's beautiful. And it, it, it's uh, the image that came to my mind is that it's not like our God is a genie in a bottle. You don't have to like right. rub the bottle and say this magic phrase and then the Holy Spirit comes yeah. to where we are, yeah. that He is already in and before and behind mm-hmm. us in a million different ways. So instead, it's just tapping into what He is expressing in that moment and what yeah. He's doing in that room or with that conversation or with your kids because I know that it, I know, even though I don't have kids of my own, I know that it can feel very isolating and it it can can. feel really, really lonely in Mm -hmm. that season. So maybe there is opportunity to find friendship with God in a fresh way. And I mean, even thinking about relationships, I was looking at your about section on your website and was learning about the degrees that you have and the ones that you're pursuing. And it seems like a lot of your education has been in human interaction. You've got counseling, you've got intercultural studies, Mm -hmm. even in theology and like your MDiv that you're pursuing. I mean, I think that there's just a lot of human interaction in that. What are some things that you've learned that have stood out to you just about the ways that humans have interacted historically, but also in this specific set of time? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big question. A big question. Yeah. (laughs) You're absolutely right. The thing that I just love to study is how, how we work, how we think, like what what's going on bes- behind the scenes. Like I know what we buy at the grocery store and I know how we spend our days and how we schedule our time, but why, you know, like mm-hmm. what are the things that we're believing or what are the things that we're motivated by and how does that change across cultures? And so I'm going to, I'm going to try not to get super, super <laughs> dorky here, but um, one, one of the things that I'm going to just say off the top of my head yes. um, about this is just how badly we need each other and we're, mm. we're created to be together. 
Um, I'm, I'm an introvert, and so many of my books are about how much I struggle with chaos because my life is full of chaos. Um, and so I, I'm, I love to, like, pull away and, like, kind of bury myself in ideas, but we need each other. And I think yeah. that's something that we're trying right now for the first time in human history is, is isolating ourselves, like, really deeply. And I don't think it's going well for us, you mm-hmm. know? Like, we have our, our own houses. We have a lot of us, I don't personally, have a garage, you know? So you mm-hmm. can kind of go from your house to your car, yep. and then your car leaves the house, and you drive to wherever you're going. And you can, you can literally never step outside. Your feet don't need to feel the grass. You don't need to walk around in the trees. You know, you don't have to walk down to the lake or the river to get water. We're isolated from each other in the community and we're isolated from the creation that God made to sustain us. And I think it, 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 this isn't what I think, you know, research bears out that we are kind of falling apart because mm-hmm. we don't know how to get along with each other. We don't know how to depend on each other. And we don't have kind of some of the even biological benefit of being outside in this garden that God made and placed us in. And so as much as I love my air conditioning and I definitely love this quiet room that I'm in right now, (laughs) I do have an awareness that that comes at a cost. Um, So that's, I guess that's one thing I would say at the top of my head is we've lost how to live surrounded. Well, and I think you're speaking to that in a very um, far-reaching way. Like Mm -hmm. all of us are disconnected from others based on, like you said, the way our towns are set up, the way our homes Mm -hmm. are set up, the way that our phones and computers. I mean, I work full-time remote, so I am working a full job, an entire career from my bedroom, from yes. the desk in my bedroom, which I is, do too. <laughs> is, it's wild. It's like, how is this even possible? So there are some of those things that are just a reality for living life in 2023. Absolutely. But then there also was this even further, even more severe isolation that happened yes. Yes. with the pandemic. And, and I hesitate to even bring it up because it feels like, oh my gosh, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Right. But I have noticed, I think only in the last year has have I really started to wrap my mind around the way that it changed how I am and, yes. and like the effects of what that shutdown looked yeah. like. And I mean, I had never worked remotely in my life except for a day mm. or two at a time. And that was when the full-time remote thing started. And so I, I would say, or I would ask, what would you say to the person who still feels really isolated post-pandemic from their church, from their friends, from their yeah. lifestyle, from nature, like yeah, that just yeah. feel like they fell into a rhythm of alone? Yeah, man. Well, I I wish I could knock on this person's door and, and, you know, bring them a cup of coffee or tea or tea, tea, whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I I guess, ironically, what I want to say is you're not alone. There are Mm -hmm. so many of us who still feel so isolated. I too used to at least work part-time in an office and part-time in my bedroom, but now I'm just full-time in my bedroom. Yeah. Um, A lot of the kind of community groups, book clubs, um, even sort of regular friend meetups that I used to fill my life with have, you know, were obviously put on hold for a long time and most of them just never started up again. And so I think a lot of us are still recovering from that isolation. Mm. And so many of the things that needed to go online for a while have just stayed online. And there's you know, like we both pointed out, there's a lot of benefit yeah. to that. I get to be here with my kids all summer long while they're working and, or while I'm working. And, you know, that's, I love that. Um, 
but these things do come at a cost. And so I think I hesitate to say to the isolated person, you know, get back out there because I know it's not that easy (laughs) and I don't want to be, you know, like victim blaming or victim Mm -hmm. shaming Mm -hmm. that person who feels so lonely. Um, So I think I'll just leave it at, you know, a lot of us are feeling that way, Mm -hmm. you know, reach out where you Mm -hmm. can. If there's somebody that you can let know how you're feeling or what you're needing, take a risk. Yeah, because yeah. We, we desperately need each other and there are other people feeling this way. I, I think that I think that's it. I think it's helpful to know that um, there's not something wrong with you. Yeah. Like you're not the one person in right, Atlanta left or Georgia or Chicagoland that's <laughs> mm-hmm. feeling like I, yeah, that got left behind. Like, I don't know what happened. I just haven't quite found my wheels or my legs yet. And I'm just still kind of feeling uncertain because honestly, almost everyone I speak to are having similar experiences, regardless of their profession, regardless of their lifestyle. A21 is a global anti-human trafficking organization that exists to abolish slavery everywhere forever. Through 19 offices in 14 different countries, the way this work happens is through three initiatives, reach, rescue, and restore. Reaching individuals with life-saving awareness materials to prevent human trafficking before it starts. You can go to a21.org education and download a ton of free resources right now. Number two, rescue, rescuing individuals that are trapped in human trafficking situations and helping assist them to safety. This looks like collaborating with local and national law enforcement to assist in operations, but also to operate human trafficking hotlines so that individuals and communities can report suspicions that they see. And number three is restore, restoring individuals, restoring survivors of human trafficking to a life of independence and flourishing. So partnering with survivors to achieve the goals and the dreams that they have for their life. This is the perfect time to take your first step in being a part of the solution against human trafficking. A21 is hosting Walk for Freedom on Saturday, October 14th, and you can join thousands of people in hundreds of cities worldwide. The way that Walk for Freedom works is there are different hosts in cities all around the globe that are hosting these rallying events where it's totally free. You can show up and you get to just help spread awareness in your city by walking in a silent single file line in a route that is predetermined by the host. All of this, the whole goal is just to raise awareness and help people in our towns and our neighborhoods understand that human trafficking is happening, but to also be educated to know what it looks like. So if you would like to be a part of of Walk for Freedom 2023, you can visit a21.org walk. You can also visit a21.org to find more resources and to give a one-time gift to sponsor freedom today. Um, in, in your studies and in your own personal experience, what are patterns you've noticed about the way that Christians are interacting hmm. with each other <laughs> and with the world? What's something that you've noticed about that? <laughs> 
Well, funny you should ask. My most recent book is called Fearing Bravely, Risking Love for Our Neighbors, Strangers, and Enemies. And I did a lot of research. I was actually writing it during the shutdown. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So it came out in 2022, but I was writing it in 2020. And of course, the research and the statistics that I was going through at that time was from 2019, 2018, before the pandemic. But even then, all the statistics that I were finding were saying... The vast majority of Americans do not know any of their neighbors, you know, like um, maybe are like friendly, like I know their name, but definitely not like, why don't you come over for dinner? You know, why don't we hang out in the yard? Right. The majority of Americans don't know any of our neighbors. And um, instead, we tend to be afraid of them because our neighbors have become strangers. And because they're strangers, we get kind of suspicious. We get a little afraid and we start to view them as enemies. And when we are afraid, we tend to become dangerous ourselves, you know, because if Mm -hmm. I think somebody is coming to my door to harm me, but they're really coming to drop off some cookies. Yeah. I, I might call the police on them. I might yell at them. Like I'm becoming the enemy myself because I'm Mm -hmm. afraid, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. And so the statistics that I was reading about our isolation and our suspicion of each other, and then our tendency to harm each other out of that suspicion, rather than reach out out of compassion or friendship or even neighborliness, really, really blew me away. I, I became so passionate about this topic as a Christian while I was researching it, because of course, Jesus said that we would be known that his followers, his true followers would be known for their love. But poll after poll after poll associated the word Christian with fear and hate. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm going to believe Jesus. (laughs) And if he says that his true followers are known for their love, then I'm wondering how useful the word Christian is as a label to describe Jesus' followers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's accurate. Where do you think this comes from? Like, what do you think is feeding that fear? Um, And what is kind of stirring that up and making it now into a habit and a rhythm and an expectation Mm -hmm. that others expect us to respond in that way? What do you think Mm -hmm. is feeding it? Well, I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's so many factors and definitely our isolation is part of it. Mm -hmm. Some of it is real legitimate fears, you know, Mm -hmm. like um, if I put my hands on a hot stove, I'm going to get burned and I'm not going to put my hands on the hot stove again, you know, and that's good. Mm -hmm. That's an important way that my brain works to protect me. But I think when we're isolated, we can kind of become enslaved to our fears. True. And there are definitely messages all throughout the media that are fueling that. Um, Mm -hmm. Just like I earlier, I said, there's a lot of marketing that's successful because it makes moms feel like they're not doing enough. There's definitely a lot of marketing that's successful because it's telling Americans we need to be afraid of each other. Yeah. And I don't think we have really interrogated the role that that's playing on our formation, the way we are formed as people, as Christians, as communities, how that impacts the way we interact with each other, whether or not we interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it has felt like, it, it, and especially as we're getting closer to an election cycle, <laughs> things get so divisive. And it's so interesting because actually some of the podcasts that I listen to frequently um, are not faith-based. Mm-hmm. And I would say we don't align in a lot of our areas of theology or even like our view of the world or of humanity. But it's so interesting 
I listen to them for a million reasons, but I've also heard them say, like, they also, even though they may fall on a different political line or a different whatever, even a different faith line, mm-hmm. they're feeling a lot of the same things we're feeling. And they're yes. seeing a lot of the same things we're seeing. Yes. So then you start to say, well, where is this division coming from? Like, yeah. where is this breakage and this just polarization mm-hmm. happening? Um because it's, it seems like we're so much more, I'm so much more apt to identify where I'm different from someone mm-hmm. than what we share in common. And when you really water it down, we share so much more in common than the things that we have different. And I, I think that my mind is only starting to shift in that way to remember that mm-hmm. um, and to remember that we have a lot in common with our neighbors, with our yes. brothers, with our sisters, regardless of what flag they fly, what thing they do, what place yes, they shop, yeah. whatever like yeah. it could be. Um, that At the end of the day, we're all navigating this human experience and we're living in this neighborhood. We're living in this zip code. We're trying to like raise our kids and have healthy relationships Mm -hmm. and live a life that matters. That's really kind of like the foundation for a lot of it. Yeah, absolutely. In, in this book that I mentioned, Fearing Bravely, Risking Love for Our Neighbors, Strangers, and Enemies, I unpack Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of it goes over our heads now. Um, But Jesus was talking to a group of his own countrymen and they said, okay, we know that we need to love God by loving our neighbor. That's like the number one thing that God cares about. Like we get that, but, but who is my neighbor? Like, and they're looking for boundaries. You know, they're like, okay, we will do what God told us, but where's the limit? Mm -hmm. And Jesus tells this super provocative story about a Samaritan who sees somebody, um, along the side of the road, who is suffering, possibly dead. And this this man, this Samaritan man, uses his own resources in a dangerous moment, his own time, to save this man's life. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the Samaritan is that to the people listening to Jesus' story, he was a stranger. He was not one of them. He was considered, religiously, he would have been a heretic. And he was very much an enemy. Um, The Jews and the Samaritans had been, they had been family long ago. They had been neighbors who became strangers and then became enemies. And somehow we just keep missing the fact that Jesus is saying, it's, it may be a, a, an enemy and a heretic that is pleasing God more than you are if you're doing, if he's doing the work of, yeah. of caring for a stranger, even when it's dangerous, even when it's costly. And that's the message that I want to imbibe myself because I have a hard time letting that sink in and living that out. And I want to be in a community of people who assume that to follow Jesus means taking that seriously yeah. and believing that what God has asked us to do is not to kind of divide along these lines of heretic, not heretic, right. you know, enemy, right. not not enemy, but to just go out and take care of anybody that you see that's in need, even if it's dangerous. What do you think that looks like in a modern day context? Like what would a modern day example of like the Good Samaritan be, even hmm. if it's a small, like a small form of that? You know, I think that I'm, that is the question I'm always asked on podcasts. Yes. <laughs> and I, this sounds like a cop out, but 
what, the reason why I wrote this book in particular is because I wanted to start that conversation on on a local level, mm-hmm. because I don't know who that's going to be in your neighborhood, yeah. Yeah. and I can't figure that out on my own in my own neighborhood. But I, mm-hmm. if if the body of Christ could come together, we could wrestle with this. We could say, who yeah. are the people in need in our neighborhood, and why are we? F- feeling so separated from them? Why are we not sacrificially crossing the track, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to become neighbors with this group Mm -hmm. of people? And, you know, it even plays out online. Um, Just earlier today, I saw someone who, on Twitter, whose profile is just all about Christianity, all about Jesus, all about following Jesus. But he's in the news right now because he egregiously committed a hate crime against a certain group of people. And the thought, (laughs) the thought that we could ever act as an enemy towards someone simply because we viewed them as our enemy. Jesus says we have to love and even lay down our lives for our enemies. So I would definitely disagree with this man about whether mm-hmm. or not this person that he harmed was his enemy. But even I would be willing to concede and say, you view this person as your enemy. Okay. Even so. E- then your your next task is to yeah. love that person. Yeah. And so I think I can't give like a formula for how that's going to play out in our modern life. But if we could somehow be committed to discipling each other through our conversations to realize that even if that person is suspicious, even if that person is a stranger, even if that person is an enemy, our task is to love them, then we're going to figure this out on our own. And I do obviously need to give a caveat. You know, I'm not talking to the woman who has just finally left her abusive boyfriend and saying, go back. I'm not saying like, take your little children into a dangerous neighborhood. Um, This is why we have the body of Christ because some of us are more vulnerable. We need to protect the more vulnerable people. That's Mm -hmm. the whole point. Mm -hmm. But some of us can be going out. And I think when we do, we find that a lot of the things we are scared of were just in our minds. And that, like you said, people are trying their best to get by everywhere. And if we could link arms, we'd Mm -hmm. get a lot further. Yeah, I mean, it makes me even think my my full-time work is with an anti-human trafficking organization. And a lot of times people will ask, what can I do? How can I help? Like, what can I do to make a difference? And my answer now is different than when I would have, when I started four years ago. I see now how many issues funnel into the, the, issue of human trafficking. I see how homelessness, Mm -hmm. how hunger, how emotional and um, domestic Mm -hmm. abuse, how foster care, how all of these different areas of vulnerability can feed into um, an a person's opportunity to be exploited. So basically yes. what traffickers are doing is they're exploiting a vulnerability. So for a lot of people who ask me what to do in their city, maybe there isn't an office for our organization. Maybe there's not a nonprofit that specifically focuses on anti-human trafficking. Mm-hmm. But if you do anything to love on the people in your neighborhood, in your community that yeah. need help or yes. need some kind of assistance, then you will inevitably 
inevitably be helping yes. in this direction. Yes. And it feels so loose, but it's, it's really not. With all the stories that I've heard, there's multiple layers to it. And mm-hmm. so sometimes um, if the exploitation that was taken was on a relationship, having someone in your life that's a friend that you can talk through, that you can you know bounce things off of, even that in itself can reduce that vulnerability. So I see that playing into kind of what you're sharing very specifically yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. My husband is a social worker and he would echo all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, our society is very much set up to isolate us. So, you know, we choose, again, I'm doing my invisible air quotes. We choose a (laughs) safe neighborhood for ourselves if we can, you know, the safest neighborhood we can. And then we are sort of funneled from our, our house to our car, to the safe grocery store, to the safe school, to the safe church, to the safe group of people that are very similar to us. And we say, well, that's, that's all that they're, that's, that's everybody. Um, but we don't realize that just two streets down, there's a totally different kind of community. Yeah. And often it is a much more life-giving community. Often it's those places where vulnerable people are gathering together to support each other, where you can actually find the kingdom of God um, being lived out, not in a utopia way. I don't have like mm-hmm. um, those blind spots, but it, we can't. we could learn to cross the street. Yeah. And I hear what you're saying. It's not just this savior complex of Mm -hmm. let me come in and make someone's day or fix someone's problem. Um, Because we even have a community like that here in the city that we live in, in Columbus. And when my husband Scott and I were involved in that community years ago before we moved, uh, we had so much more to gain than we ever had to give. Like, sure, we were there. Yes, we were there to hang out and um, play games with the kids and whatever we could do to help for sure. But rarely did we actually give even a fraction of what we gained from those from those friends, from those people, from those families. It was amazing. Yes, I'm, that's absolutely my experience as well. And that goes back to what we were kind of saying at the mm-hmm. very beginning is that we're made for community. We've lost sight of how to have community. Mm-hmm. But when we rub shoulders with each other and let our lives kind of intermingle, amazing things happen because that's what we were created for. Yeah. Hard things happen too. Yes. Hard yes. things happen too. <laughs> but that's, but all the goodness of life is there in yeah. the mess. Yeah, that's the beauty of the both. It's mm-hmm. both. Mm-hmm. And that is can be good and that can be beneficial. Yeah. Well, and one last question for you, speaking to like the beauty that mm-hmm. we see in everyday life. We are at the the day that this podcast comes out, the next day is September. Okay, oh. so we are like knocking on fall's door. Like we are there. Yes. And I know that for you in Chicago, seasons are very different than for me in Georgia or for our friends who will be in Southern California. Like the season Seasons really are different, but your third book that you wrote is All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World, and you talk about what we can learn from the shifting of seasons, and so what should we keep our eyes out for as seasons are shifting right now? We're about to be in fall, then holidays. What should we be looking for? Awesome. I love that question. Well, you know, your lead-in was kind of of us both saying that the beauty and the heart of life are all mixed up together. And that's really what I'm trying to get through, I think, in all three of my books Um, and how we can keep our eye on the beauty and how we can rest in God's presence in the heart. Um, But in this book in particular, All Shall Be Well, like you said, I have it um, structured by the four seasons 
spring, winter, fall. Man, I, do I know the seasons? <laughs> spring, <laughs> summer, fall, and winter. Yes. And then it ends in death of the deepest winter. But then there's a spoiler alert that it ends actually in resurrection in the coming of spring again. And that cycle, I think, is what I get concerned for myself when I'm too cut off from it because having lived 40-something years of that cycle over and over again, it has taught me endurance and perseverance. It has taught me that there is going to be a season that is way too hot, but things will cool down again. And then it'll be way too dark, but then life will come back again. And you know, we said earlier about the way we isolate ourselves, not just from other people, but even from the garden that God created and put us in. Um, I think there are things that God wants to feed us that we are have lost because we are, we've taken away that cycle as much as we can. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm sitting in a in a house that is 75 degrees right now, even though it's 103 outside. Yes. And I am so grateful that I am. Yeah. Yeah. But I can turn my light on at night and not really experience darkness, which mm-hmm. is great because I can keep reading or keep working, keep talking to friends, but I can't see the stars, you know? And I don't have to take the time to really contemplate God's presence in the darkness. Um, so as we head into fall... I know, especially for you down down mm-hmm. south, yep. it is such a relief for you mm-hmm. uh, to have that unrelenting heat, um, especially this year, it seems for a lot of people yes. to have a break from that. So like, I would invite the listener to, to welcome that relief and remember that God leads us to quiet waters and to green pastures. But for me, much further north, fall is a harbinger of death. It tells me that the season of life is coming to an end, that my relief is coming to an end, and that hard times are coming uh, because it gets so cold where I live. And I also have awful allergies in the fall. (laughs) So for me, it is an opportunity to let go of my desire to control, to have things the way I want them, which is beautiful and green and sunny. Um, And instead to trust that God will carry me through this darkening season that's going to be full of suffering and trouble, uh, but that God will be with me all along the way. Yeah, I find a lot of comfort in knowing that life happens Mm -hmm. in seasons so that even obviously the parallel of if my life feels dry, if it feels barren, if it feels naked, like exposed, that um, life happens in seasons and that the Lord has set up this world to Mm -hmm. function and flow in seasons. And so we can look ahead and we can also kind of settle in to where we're at without that fear that this is forever. Because things come and and they go, they change, they ebb, and they flow. And that gives me a lot of peace and lets me be a bit more gentle with myself and with my life Mm -hmm. um, instead of trying to force it to bloom in the middle of a dead winter. (laughs) Yes, Or vice versa. I mean, who knows? We'll see what happens with these seeds down the road. Maybe I'll have a better season next year and I'll have to call you for some advice. (laughs) I'm not the best to speak to seasons and seeds, but definitely learn a lot from watching how the Lord has set everything up and 
how uh, my others that I admire have kind of learned from those rhythms. Yeah, that is a perfect summary of what I what I believe and what I feel and experience and what I'm hoping to share with the yeah. reader. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you for your time. Thank you for letting this conversation just unfold as it did. <laughs> we had plans and we hit yeah. some of our plans, but we also kind of got into we some meandered. fresh ground. Yep. And I love that. And you are welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you, Nikki. This has been a great conversation. I'm so grateful to be here with you today. If you just fell in love with Catherine like I did and you want more of her writing, I just wanted to recap those book titles for you and then let you know what her website is so that you can find more information about her. The first book we talked about was Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline. The second one that we were working through was her book Fearing Bravely, Risking Love for Our Neighbors, Strangers, and Enemies. And then the third one that we touched on right at the end that deals with seasons is the book All Shall Be Well, Awakening to God's Presence in His Messy, Abundant World. All of them are amazing. You're gonna want them on your nightstand, especially as we head into a little bit of a slower season, hopefully, where we're reading and uh, just kind of settling in to the fall and winter. And then if you are curious to know more about Catherine, you can go to her website, katherinemcneil.com. Her last name is spelled M-C-N-I. I-E-L, katherinemcneil.com. You can book her to speak at your church, at your event, on your podcast, or you can find more of her writing there. Okay, until next time. 